Welcome to Bamsey's Manity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Bamsey President and CEO Peter Evers. And on today's edition of the podcast for Pride Month, we're going to stick with that theme and talk a little bit about HIV AIDS and some of the changes in the HIV AIDS environment. You know, it's not been a major focus in the healthcare community as it was back in the 90s, really in the last 20 or so years. We're going to talk about why have there been advancements, are individuals living with HIV AIDS in a different way, and what are the reasons that is taking place. We'll talk about that today with a very special guest and to talk a little bit about Bamsey's work in this specific field as well as we welcome in right now Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think uh, as we sort of reach uh, the end of uh, Pride Month, uh, this has been a really good month to focus on some of these issues. And of course, HIV services um, continue to be a huge uh, platform within the public health uh, service in America uh, and in Massachusetts. And I am uh, lucky enough to be old enough, I suppose, to remember when uh, when this whole um, disease sort of came, um, sort of presented itself to the world, really, uh, and was and witnessed the prejudices and the fear uh, and the fear mongering, I have to say. Uh, that was going around at that time as people were isolated and people were, uh, I mean, treated awfully. We've come a long way. We've still got a long way to go, in my opinion. And I do think that Bamsey has done uh, an amazing job over the years in putting together a number of services that, that provide services for folks um, in the HIV community, but also in the substance use uh, community um, and in the trans community. Maybe we can talk a little bit about all of those services as we go forward, but we are privileged today to have Dee Qualls with us, who is a peer access navigator at HIV uh, case management services, and so nobody is better qualified, I think, than you, Dee, to have this conversation today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, actually. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, good. I'm glad you are. So let's start with um, let's start with your role a little bit. So tell us a little bit about Peer Access Navigator and where that fits into those um, those four or five services that we provide for HIV. Well, actually, a Peer Access Navigator is someone who is actually living with HIV. Um, someone who can share their experiences, and also help navigate others who have been diagnosed with HIV or AIDS through the services that are offered by our organization, which is BMC. Um, we play a number of roles, um, social roles, um, interactions with our clients. We also navigate our clients to doctors, infectious disease doctors, we accompany them to these doctors, and we are also a mouthpiece for them. So if they are struggling with anything, say medication that they've been on, or they have questions and don't know how to communicate with their doctors, we will speak for them and be their line of communication, not taking over their role, but just assisting them in whatever way we can. We also collaborate with other area organizations to provide services for our clients. I was, um, we were in a conversation actually last week or maybe the week before with Sue Joss at the um, Broxton Neighborhood Health Center, mm-hmm. and they were so um, happy with the relationship that, um, that they have with BAMS mm-hmm. in this regard. And 
spoke very highly of uh, our ability to reach um, underrepresented populations and uh, populations which have suffered prejudice. And this, of course, that's what they were talking about. So when you're dealing with those kind of cases, are these, new, are these people with a new um, diagnosis? Are these people with years and years of living with HIV and, and AIDS? Is it, or is it a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both. Um, me, myself, there are two peer advocates at um, BMC. But me, myself, I have a lot of clients who are lost and clear. Like they might have been in care at one time and then all of a sudden they just disappeared. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I usually go over my client list and try to get in contact with those clients and bring them back into services and asking, you know, what made you not stay in contact? What was the barrier? What was the obstacles? And we go from there. Mm -hmm. What would those obstacles be generally? A lot of times it's not dealing with it. A lot of times it's not support. A lot of times is not um, being a priority because if you're living out in the street, take homelessness for instance. If you're living out in the streets and you haven't, you don't have a home. I mean, and you're giving medication. Medication might be quiet to be refrigerated or something, something small to us, but large to them. They have no home. So where are you going to put your medication? Yeah. It's funny actually you should say that, dude, because I remember when I was in London. There was a big billboard that said, where do the homeless keep their meds? Yeah. And it's a, it sort of makes you think about how difficult life is to prioritize, you know, what is uh, the most uh, pressing thing in your life. Um, but there's other co-occurring disorders as well that accompany many people who struggle with HIV, such as mental health issues, substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the peer navigation piece is, right, making sure that all of those things have been dealt with, that we're not just sort of saying, oh, that person has HIV. This is a whole person who has all of these vulnerabilities or needs. How can we best put those services together to make their, you know, to improve their lives? Exactly. I think that is um, very important and very significant is that when a person is diagnosed with HIV or AIDS, it's a very traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing that comes to your mind is death, especially if you're not up to par or, you know, don't follow the changes that have been implemented and success that we've had over a number of years. So that's the first thing you think about. So that's traumatic in itself. So if you're not getting help, mental health, for that, just think where you can go with it. It's very um, underrated, if you will, the need for mental health care during those traumatic experiences for the individual and for, you know, the families. And, you know, I had a mother that went through, um, you know, cancer. And I just think about the toll that that took on her and, you know, my dad and, and the, the years of chemo and everything else. And, you know, it's really important to maintain a positive mindset in those circumstances in order to address the um, the physical illness. And it's a real challenge um, mm -hmm. because you are faced with your own mortality. You're faced with a bunch of time with yourself to contemplate what went wrong in your life, what went right, um, what you could have done differently. And all you have uh, in those circumstances very often is time, you know, to yourself. And, um, I think that that's you know something that's very important, but not doesn't necessarily play as much of a role as it should in 
circumstances when individuals have been diagnosed with um, a you know catastrophic or life threatening uh, illness. Um, so, in your circumstances, and I want to get backwards, go backwards in a little bit and talk about your your story and also you know what living with HIV/AIDS is because I think that you know myself included, I'm not exactly sure what that what that means um, and what that means in 2021 versus say 19 you know 91. Um, so let's go first into the mental health care side of things and what in your view is the relationship right now and what does the relationship need to be uh, moving forward for individuals who are um, uh, who are given that type of news? Um, sharing my experience when I was first diagnosed um, I didn't know anything about HIV or AIDS. Um, I couldn't believe it. Um, I remember going into my doctor's office and, um, you know, getting the test and her calling me at work and um, her telling me that she had my test results. Um, I had just started a new relationship, um, thought it was the man of my dreams, um, and, um, you know, he had told me that he had went to the doctors and he got tested for hep C. Well, I got my medical journal and it said I should get tested for HIV, which I did. And like I said, my doctor had called me and she said, I got your test results, come to the office. I went down to her office and I remember her coming in and when she came in, she had a manila envelope and on it, it said positive in capital letters. And she sat in front of me and I remember her saying, I have good news and I have bad news. What, one, uh, what year was this? Um, that was in 2003. Okay. And I said, um, hmm, to myself, you know, and she says, which one do you want first? And, of course, give me the good news, you know. And she said, well, you tested negative for hep C, but you tested positive for the HIV antibody. And, I mean, after she told me that, it hit me and... I don't remember anything else. I remember numb. I remember not seeing her. And all I said to her, I remember saying to her, which was kind of cocky at the time, um, I don't know if I should hug you or punch you. <laughs> you know, Which and, is a fair reaction. Yeah, in that. <laughs> yeah you know. Yeah. And I said, but I know I have to leave. Yeah. And I got up and she let me walk out. Mm-hmm. When I walked out, there was a phone on the wall, and the first person I called was my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember her crying and saying, Mom, I have something to tell you. And I said, I'm at the doctor's office, and I just tested positive for the HIV virus. And she, all I could remember is um, her screams, Oh, no, oh, no, not you, anybody else but you. Mm-hmm. And I remember leaving and hanging up and walking, just walking, going home. I was in Brockton, and I was walking to Stoughton. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming upon a church, and I said, let me go into this church and see if I can talk to a priest so he can pray with me. And I remember walking into the church, and the priests were there, and there were other people there. And I, he came up to me, and he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I really need to talk to you. And he said, well, I can't talk to you now. Hmm. And that was the second blow Mm -hmm. of the day. 
So I remember walking, and I remember looking up, and the, cl- and the clouds were there, but the sky was like an opal blue. I remember mm-hmm. that so clear and vivid. And I remember saying, God, it's okay, you're with me. Mm-hmm. And when I got home, first person I had to call was this young man, because I had to tell him. Couldn't keep it to myself. And I remember him telling me, um, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to ride this thing together. I got your back, and we'll be okay. Little did I know that he would change over time and dismiss me out of his life. Mm -hmm. From that point on, my doctor referred me to BMC, and I was saved by grace. BMC came into my life, and they gave me a chance not only to get better, but also to help others. And that was my calling. They gave me the plateau and the opportunity to learn to believe in myself and realize that this was a small part of me. This wasn't all of me. Mm -hmm. I had so much to give. So they taught me everything I knew at that point and encourage me to learn more. Mm-hmm. And whenever they asked me to do something, I would always do it. I said, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to always be there no matter what. And they gave me the, my start. They gave me my start in working in the community, getting to know others, talking about it. And they empowered me to realize that this wasn't just mine. It was everybody's. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, everyone was a test away. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were mm-hmm. having unprotected sex, if you were intravenous drug users, if you were sharing drugs, most likely mm-hmm. there was a chance you might get caught up mm-hmm. in this tidal way. You know, and that's what we were saying. That's what the community needed to hear at that point because we wasn't shouting it loud enough mm-hmm. for us to get it. We wasn't going into each and every community and shouting it from the rooftops. We picking shows at that time, mm-hmm. you know. So it gave me, and it still does, the opportunity to continue to heal, if you will. Because every time I'm able to share, I'm healing, not mm-hmm. only myself, but also others. Yeah, a couple things off of that. Um, first off, um, just thank you so much for, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, obviously... You're still raw um, 18 years later, and um, that's, that's pretty remarkable in itself. And kind of bringing it back to what we were talking about with, with mental health care, Peter, like at that moment when, you know, when Dee first heard about it, that became a mental health situation as well. And what you, you know, sounded like you were looking for in that instance was somebody to kind of talk through the situation with. Your, your mom obviously is going to have one reaction, and that's – you need to tell her, but that's you know not going to be the reaction necessarily that you need in that moment. The priest, the doctor were both dismissive, and um, your boyfriend at that time provided some support in that instance. But again, would not you know down down the road as you, um, you know, categorized. But you know in that this conversation is going a little bit different direction than I anticipated. But I think that that needs to be one of the you know the main focuses for our medical community moving forward. Is in that instance when you were at your most vulnerable, you needed somebody. Be- to help with your mental health care, because that is, you know, when a person learns of cancer, learns of HIV AIDS, and that is a time which, you know, you need that support as well. So what is the current situation 
before we get back to HIV AIDS, of intervention in a circumstance like Dee's, where Dee needed somebody in that instance to help her through the mental health side of things, to say, well, what are you thinking now? And answering some of those those questions of, okay, you're thinking that this is something that is going to take your life. Um, let me give you the facts of this, and let me take you through what this is going to be like. Yeah, I mean, Dee, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story. Oh, you're welcome. A story of courage and a story of perseverance and a story of hope as well in terms of giving back. And and I hear time and time again from folks in this field that part of their recovery is the giving back and the supporting. And that's what I want to focus on a little bit because mm-hmm. because what the story that you told might have been how not to, you know, give somebody news or how not to offer somebody succor, you know, like and a priest says, I can't speak to you, well, what are you there for, you know? If you're not there to listen to the, the, the difficulties that people are going, surely that's the, the essence of, of what they do. I think doctors um, sometimes do have poor bedside manner. I think over the past 10 years, 15 years, there's been a lot of work to be done to say, look, it isn't about just delivering news. It's about how you deliver news. It's about how you sort of figuratively put your arms around the people, the, a mm. person, so that when they hear that news, it, it, you know, that they, they don't feel alone. Um, but I, I'm going to say this. I think the most important thing that's really happened over the last 20 years is peers. I mean, you, I, I'm a trained um, social worker, and, um, but, and I can do some things. But one thing I can't do is give somebody hope and help walk through an experience that you have had. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing restorative, more restorative, in my opinion, than the ability to sit with somebody who has gone through a diagnosis, has embarked in treatment, is well, is hopeful, and offers somebody a pathway. And that's what you do every day. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's remarkable to me that you're able to do that. And, and then also to feel that it's part of your journey as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do, I think it's, yes, our professionals need to be taught um, that there's a human being in there. Mm-hmm. It's not a diagnosis that just has to be recognized. You have to give people the support that they need because most people have the internal support and strength internal strength to get through these things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you make a really good point in, in those instances. Yes, the doctor can be better, but you know, where, where is the handoff at that point in time, whether it's, you know, to cancer survivors, uh, whether it's to, um, you know, a peer, uh, support group, um, similar to what, uh, what D does here at, uh, at Bamsey, uh, that has to occur really early on because then, you know, mental health and, and suicide and all those types of things become a concern, I think, in those immediate um, instances when people are facing grief and trauma in times that they you know, cannot comprehend. Yes, we are resilient, but in those early moments, that's the point where, you know, you can go one way or the other. <laughs> Resilience is a long-term thing. Resilience, mm-hmm. like these, it's every it's every day. Resilience, uh, but in the in the interim, in that very immediate time span, is where things can go in one direction um, or the other. And I think trust is a big part too in in peer support, where D is a person to be trusted based upon her experience. And it's difficult at times, we've talked about this from a clinician standpoint, where a clinician sits across on the couch and they look a little stuffy and you're like, eh, is this going to work? <laughs> not looking just specifically at you, Peter. But um, I guess, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Uh, this person doesn't understand me. And I think that that's a big piece is the understanding equals 
the um, the trust. And the what is living with HIV AIDS today in 2021 as compared to 2003? Or I think for many people, um, 1991 or two, when Magic Johnson um, announced he had AIDS, I think was one of the big watershed moments of AIDS in uh, this country. Um, what's changed in terms of the treatment? And you also mentioned the prevention side before as well, which we'll get to. But in terms of the treatment, what is it? What is it like to live with HIV/AIDS? What's what things do you do? Are you able to do? Not able to do? Are you able to live as normal? And what's changed in terms of treatment? <clears throat> well, we know that um, treatment has come a long way. You know, um, God bless scientists mm-hmm. and trials and things to that nature. Um, you know, now instead of taking 15 to 20 medications a day, you could take one. They're smaller, they're more tolerable, they're not as toxic. So that's great. But in terms of services, you know, based on people living a longer and healthy life, services have diminished. You know, um, lack of housing support. Um lack of social supports, you know, lack of um, social groups. They don't exist anymore. Um, And those are things that it's kind of like a wellness to the soul, to the spirit. You need that. Mm -hmm. Some people who are diagnosed um, don't have anyone to speak with. Some people who have been diagnosed live alone, aloners. So when you're able to come to a support group, that group becomes your family. That's your safe haven. That's a place where you can come and you can bear all, where you can receive information, you know, and apply it to your life and hopes to wellness. That's a safe place. We don't have that anymore. You know, the only one you might have is your peer access navigator, you know, or you might have a case manager. But let's face it, really the nine-to-five. What about the after hours when you're alone in the dark and those thoughts start coming to you? You know, and those are the times where you need people the most and no one's there. Or you can't pull yourself to tell them what's going on, you know. So these things have been taken from us. One reason, we know it's money, you know. And other things pop up that might be more important. But these things have been done away with and um. We suffer. So you think that is because there is less of a, a problem, or is it because there's less of a focus on it because you know something new has come along, or that um, you know, individuals are living longer lives with HIV/AIDS, and as a result of that, there's not the support in other aspects. So, if, in other words, because things have gotten "quote unquote" better, things have actually gotten worse in some ways because there's less of a a focus on providing the services? I think that when you look at it, have things gotten better or do we just want to look at it that things have gotten better? But if we do or look internally, have they gotten better? I mean, is anybody out there, you know, diving, digging into it, questioning? No. You know, we have these medications. You take your medications, you're going to be all right. Well, there are still certain people that can't take the medications. They're not tolerable. So what about those people who can't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you hit on a good point. And this is the problem with public health, in my opinion. 
not only in America but the world, um, that we don't invest in prevention. There is no real prevention um, philosophy in this country. We're reactive to things. And unfortunately, when you're reactive to things, then something else is going to come along. Mm -hmm. You know, think about this mm -hmm. COVID epidemic and all of the effort that's been put into that. You know, there is, you know, there's still Ryan White funding that's around, but it's not enough um, because we've moved on. You know, and one of the sad things is that um, people begin to take notice when they when they think it might directly affect them. I think the job of public health is really to explain that that, that whatever diseases or whatever issues are part of humanity, and we all own them, and we all have to strive to make sure that the resources are there to uh, to take into account how how people get to live a life that they want to and. Yep. Um, and it takes a lot of advocacy, which I know that you've been involved with, mm -hmm. and so has Bamsi, and we'll continue to do that. But to your point, you know, we still have a long way to go. We do. Yeah, I think you make a good point about, to me, it's the 24-7 news cycle, where you, for a period of time, HIV AIDS was driving that news cycle because famous people were getting HIV AIDS, and there was a lot of wonder about, you know, what... Um, how do you get it? Uh, how can you, what type of behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that, it was driving the news cycle. And then once um, individuals were seeming to live productive lives and they, it, basically um, people said, okay, it's cured. So let's move on. And it became the next thing. And during the COVID pandemic, Nothing else mattered. People, <laughs> cancer it didn't matter for a period no. of time. You weren't, you didn't go for your preventative checkup. You didn't go for your screening. You weren't. It was COVID, and that was, and that was it. Um, and a lot of the public attention is driving the public health, which is not the way that it should be focused. Public health should operate in its own lane, and public, um, you know, public opinion, public thought operates in. In another lane, and instead, there was this predominance of focus in the early '90s and even into the early 2000s on HIV/AIDS, and then all of a sudden, the interest on the public part seemed to dissipate. While there's still many individuals out there who are living with um, HIV/AIDS, and you know, getting getting back to to that, I mean, what is the you mentioned it's kind of the the mental burden. What is the the physical burden of um, of HIV AIDS, and in particular, if people aren't taking um, medication? And has there what um, advancements have been made in the on the prevention side? As you're talking about that before, where you needed to get out, the messaging needed to get out about unprotected sex and about um, intravenous needles. Has has that messaging meant? less HIV AIDS or is are the numbers still uh, high in that realm? Um, how can I put it? The only way I can put it is this. I don't think that is captioned the way it used to. Um, we have needle exchange, which is, oh my goodness, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great thing. But still, we have people who are sharing needles. Still people, everyone's not going to listen mm -hmm. or get the message. That's just the way people are. Until, like you said, when it happens to them. Mm -hmm. Is there less HIV and AIDS? Who knows? Who's watching numbers now? Mm -hmm. 
is the public watching numbers now? I mean, I turn on the TV every once in a while with COVID numbers in my city when I used to make it a daily habit every morning to turn it on. Now I'm not so interested in it because I know everybody's getting a vaccine. The majority of people are, so it's not, quote, unquote, quite as important to me. So as time goes on, like everything else in our lives, it becomes normalized. And I believe that's what it is. But for those who are living with it, it, it never is. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I was thinking about whether I should say this, but I'm going to say it. I think, you know, human beings are... The talk show, the talk show host to me loves that. The uh, <laughs> PR person, not so much. <laughs> so human beings are strange. <laughs> and one of the things that we like to do is distance ourselves from diseases or things that might be negative to us. We create prejudices about them, and HIV is a really good right. example of that, as was herpes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could go back years. Um, but what we like to do is put some distance between the possibility of us being in that group or suffering from that disease, whatever it might be. And it, actually, if you look at human behavior, that's what we do. We're always trying to distance ourselves. And yet you read these articles, Dean, I'm sure you have, of these outbreaks of HIV in on college campuses, for instance. Mm-hmm. Actually, in Florida, in um, elderly um, or assisted living programs, yes. it's still there. It's still The villages. Contagious. Yeah, the villages yeah. is a good yeah. example. It's still contagious, but we just don't want to think about it because it's not in our faces every day. Um, and we need to change that, and I think we do that through public health. I agree, and I think a lot of times we also want to distance ourselves just from flat out reality like even if we (laughs) right even if we are you know even if we have a disease or a virus or a mental health issue like we're constantly trying to find diversionary tactics in order to move ourselves in a different direction or to try to convince ourselves that we're not like that person that person's worse because of that and you know these types of yeah, I, I'm I'm not a clinician. I can't say if it's better to confront the realities of the circumstance and to allow for that to be predominant, or if it's better to have diversionary tactics to, you know, to go in a, a different direction. That's something that obviously clinicians argue about a lot. Whether the, the confront uh, aspect and when confronting becomes a greater hindrance than the burying. <laughs> like so, um, but I think that you know, from from your perspective, uh, the um, what what is the 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 best way to um to to live with a a circumstance like uh like yours and because you've obviously over the last 18 years have done a lot of trial and error you mentioned there's been great days there have been challenging days and moments there's regret uh, about certain things that may have taken place what in your view is you know the best way to um to address this, what do you tell your peers and when you're supporting them about how to um, how to, to not necessarily confront uh, the circumstance, but meet the challenge of the circumstance? I can't tell them honestly to be truthful. I can't tell them because their life and their background is totally different from mine. What I can do is I can share some of the techniques that I use. Mm -hmm. Some have worked, some haven't. You know, like when I go into a place and I know I'm in a place, the first thing I think about is what makes me happy. You know, 
um, being truthful for myself. In a negative place? Yeah, Yeah. being truthful. Because I Mm -hmm. have those times. Mm -hmm. You know, I love music. I dance. I love to dance. Can't dance, but I love to dance. (laughs) You know? Um, I love to sing. Can't sing, but sing, you know? But being honest, and for the most part, don't let anyone take your power. And when people say that they know what's best for you, Sometimes they don't know mm-hmm. because you don't know if they know what's best for themselves. You know, educate yourself. Educate, educate, educate. No question is a dumb question unless you don't ask. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say. Things are always changing. You know, you have some doctors out there that still prescribe medications from 2003 and live by it. Mm-hmm. But yet and still, everything has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, how many doctors go to classes? How many doctors re-educate themselves? These are things that we must know. And don't always depend on someone to take care of you. Learn to take care of yourself. Learn to take care of yourself, you know. I can give you fish to eat, but if I teach you how to fish, you'll always eat. Mm-hmm. Truth. The rule of empowerment, and you're absolutely right. You know, and I do think that the education piece is really important as well. You know, there are so many um, examples of that, that that the world is changing. You know, you think about marijuana, for instance. You know, there are doctors that will not prescribe marijuana for um, certain diseases. Cancer is one of them because they don't think they should do it. Educate yourself and, and, and know, you know, as much as you can about everything else. But I, I love the idea of helping people find their own way, helping people define what their own life is going to be like. We don't, we don't drive the bus. We're passengers on it, and we're really important passengers as well, and especially you, Dee, in terms of how you can guide people and how you can show people a way out of what they see as a very dark and difficult time. Uh, and that's the essence and the magic of what you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dee. Thank you for having me. Dequal is joining us here on the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan for Peter Evers. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.